on this episode of In The Rack Podcast. So the food story and food behavior is where we have to bring the subconscious to the conscious. I would say try to be a good scientist and try to be diet agnostic. And it also, can we just say your body is amazing that you don't have to live on a tightrope? Like, um. Welcome to In The Rack Podcast where we provide you with a practical framework for breaking PRs in all facets of health and wellness. We are just a couple of bros giving you the simple house in a world of complex wants. No filters, no scripts, no rules, just straight talk. Talk to them. Now, let's get into the rack with your hosts, Dr. Chad and Dr. Nick. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of In The Rack Podcast. I am your host, Chad, and with me is my co-host and fellow physical therapist, Nick. Nick and I have another guest on the podcast today. We had a guest last week. We have a guest this week. Um, This guest is, uh, her name is Erin Murray, and she is a nutrition expert and has a passion for the science and and whole whole foods. She's done a lot of research on this stuff. She she focuses on transforming biochemistry into delicious foods, um, takes actionable steps and sustainable lifestyles for clients. And it's uh, it's gonna be a good podcast for sure. Um, She's super smart. She, uh, She holds a master's of science in nutrition and a didactic program in dietetics. She is a research assistant at Harvard School of Public Health. Fancy. That's that's where the super smart comes in. Yeah. And uh, she operates her own private practice online and in person out of Wellesley, Mass. So welcome, Erin, to the podcast. Um, tell us a little about yourself. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, yeah you, you definitely covered it uh, in the quick notes version. So I work with um, clients and I, I have been for a long time. I started with clientele almost a decade ago when I was actually a CrossFit coach. So shout nice. out to CrossFit. Nice. Uh, that's how I put myself through my undergrad. Um, and then I've been doing the same throughout uh, grad school once I got some nutrition certifications and wanted to start working with people and then studied nutrition sciences formally and just really fell in love with working with people as a clinician, but also the research. Um, so that kind of is how I got here today. Nice, nice. Now, Erin um, is the fiance of one of my good friends, Mike DeMille, who we had on the podcast a while back. He was one of our first guests, actually. Yeah, the title of that podcast was PRI Curious, P-R-I which was Curious. awesome. And Mike yeah. said that, and I was like, that's going to be the title. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Mike. Um, but yeah, Mike, Mike, uh, Mike and I went to PT school together. We were an undergrad together. We were roommates for a little bit. He didn't like being my roommate because we had very different lifestyles at the time. He was very mature um for his uh in his health journey i was very immature in my health journey and mike um mike found the perfect match in aaron because mike is is needs someone who you know needs to be living with someone that is is along the same uh you know, path in terms of their health and nutrition. And I was not, so living with me was not good for him. Yeah. You I weren't actually, even like I probably made on him, a good journey I, until you started here. You I know. I probably, I probably sandwiches. made him go the other way. Yeah, um, I know, yeah. You know, I, I, I took some years off his life potentially. Yeah, I bet you So did. I'm sorry about that, Aaron. Um, but nonetheless, um, I'm glad you guys, you guys were able to find each other because, um, you know, I, I was definitely, I was pulling, I was pulling back the other way. You pulled them out. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. I don't want to be pulling them down anymore. But anyway, on Mike's, it was, yeah, it was Mike's uh, Instagram story. I saw a few months back, he came home 
from work and you had on the whiteboard a question. That's what we're going to start with. It said, what does it mean to eat? And I was like, I like this. And he, he, he just said, wow, someone's getting philosophical in here. So what does it mean to eat? Uh, yeah, he was he was teasing me that day. He he comes home often and there's like, I, I'm a little infamous for my whiteboard life. That's just a big part of my life. It got me through grad school. Um, so he often finds me uh, doodling around in there and, and working on things. But um, the question of what does it mean to eat was basically born from a lot of my work in general, which was over the years with clients, everything we did with their nutrition didn't work. So uh, I kind of joke, I was the worst nutritionist I've ever known uh, because I used to give people macros and meal plans, especially with CrossFit. You know, we were, we were hitting zone blocks. We were doing, we were doing all the things and um, it was just not sustainable. And I found it pretty fascinating that it didn't work. Um, And I thought, what type of a science do we have in our hands if you can't use it? Which is a big question. And so a lot of my work transitioned into focusing on how do you get a human to do something? And then that led me down this path of, well, how do we use food, period? And then if we look at that, we have to look at our evolutionary biology. And then we can look at how did we evolve to consume food? share food and how does food change us as much as we change food and so that kind of birthed this lexicon for my work like food culture what's your food story Um, looking at the habituated and automated behaviors that we have with food how our nervous system can regulate food intake or how oriented or disoriented we are around food Um, and and the way that that came through in my work was interesting because it was organic and slow, but it was kind of this thread I kept pulling. And as we determine for each person what it means to eat, you really open up Pandora's box. And through the years, I had clients have these light bulb moments and epiphanies, or they just like change completely as a person once they successfully change their food. So I always come back to that question of really examining what does it mean to eat, which inherently brings up what does it mean to be human? And what does our biology expect? What does it know how to regulate? And then how does our nervous system use food? And then that even brings up things like what happened at your dinner table when you were growing up? And that's affecting how you eat today. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. A, it's a big uh, it's a big box to open up. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's awesome. So that's that's really cool though because So what did you eat as a kid, Nick? Did you eat a lot oh of my peanut gosh. butter and jelly sandwiches? So, yes. But like this is this was this was my problem. Like this is why I, I almost ruined Mike's life. Was because I grew up so inconsistent with the nutrition because and, and it's not it's nobody's fault. My parents, like my mom was a nurse and a professor of nursing, so her hours sometimes she'd be getting home at eleven PM. My dad was a college basketball coach. So I'd be in a college basketball gym with my dad, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm not eating there. We're, we're getting food on the way home and then, or we get home and we eat at 10 PM. Right. And then the next night we eat at 6 PM, you know, but then 10 PM still rolls around and I eat at 10 PM the night before. So now I still want some food. So I go snack on, you know, ice cream or something. Right. So it was just so inconsistent. Um, and there wasn't that, that like you were mentioning this, uh, you know, necessarily community sense to it it wasn't we were cooking it as a family and learning how to cook it was like okay 
we're going to pick up some, you know, some burgers from McDonald's and then you can have some, you know, chips when you get home or something. You know, it was just like yeah. random stuff. Yeah. So it wasn't, um, which is it, probably most people out there. Yeah. Oh, for right? sure. And I think a lot of people do go through that. Um, but, but it is, it, it does have effects on you. And I, I find myself now in, in that situation where, okay, I now, you know, we have a pretty structured, you know, once I started working here, I saw you eating every three hours. I was like, I kind of want to eat every three hours, <laughs> you know? So I'm much more structured yeah. in my nutrition, but I'll still get those, those cravings. If I'm up a little bit later, you know, if I'm not in my normal, you know, kind of bedtime, nine 30, if I'm up a little later, maybe hanging out with people, I'm like, well, I'm hungry. It's 10 PM, you know? So I still have those cravings for sure. And it, it may, you know, just take me back to my, my childhood, which is interesting. People don't, you don't typically think like that with your nutrition. It's just like, okay, next day, next day. Well, it's interesting because I think where I first got curious about that concept is my clients often, I have clients of all kinds, but they're very successful people. Like I have lawyers, professors, veterans, um, someone who runs an entire jail, a superintendent of a prison, um, doctors, nurses, like these are successful, smart, very capable people. Yeah. And they it comes to their food and they just think, what's wrong with me? I'm out of control. Like, even if it's um, not a severe situation, I mean, certainly there's a spectrum of eating disorders and disordered eating, and it runs the gamut. It's a long continuum. But I started thinking, like, I'm not going to view my client as someone who just has no discipline. Like, there's something going on that I'm missing, and it's my job to figure that out. And that's when we start, or at least I started really thinking about if we look at the way a system's designed to operate, and of course for us, this is a millions years old. So we, we've really developed a certain physiology and we've developed certain chemical pathways and even especially relationships and pathways in our nervous system that, that can regulate food. But then the last 100 years, food has dramatically changed. Everything is different about our food now. And we didn't have time to evolve to regulate this. So then I look at, well, how can we basically hack this? Because I have a body that's in a environment that is, this is not a word, but unnavigable for all intents and purposes. So how do we navigate something that you kind of can't navigate? And that's where we start doing some digging and looking at, well, what does it mean to eat? And if I have a system that the nervous system's designed to co-regulate with people around me, sit around a dinner table and connect, develop a palate with a wide array of taste sensors and um, perceptions and olfaction and all these things. Yeah. And then also I'm developed to prepare food so that my GI tract can get ready to receive food. And all these different things, uh, nutrient sensing in the gut to regulate appetite. There's hormonal pathways that regulate that food intake and and how we feel around our food. So I take that system and then I put it inside a system in a home where no one's talking to each other. Everybody's on screens and Grubhub just brought food to the front door. That's like putting a polar bear in the rainforest and saying, why can't he figure this out? <laughs> yeah, that's so yeah, true. Yeah, That's so true. That, that is really true. I love how you bring the uh, evolutionary aspect into it because I tend to do that a lot with, you know, in, in physical therapy, things like that. Like, hey, this isn't normal. You sit at a desk, you, you work on a computer for eight hours. That was never something we did, right? We never sat for that long of a period. But everyone's always so quick to, um, 
you know, dismiss our evolution because they're like, oh, they didn't even live that long then though. We're living so much longer. And I'm like, well, not really. People did live longer. They just had higher rates of, you know, those, those numbers are skewed. And I say this a lot to people that those numbers are skewed because there was higher rates of infant mortality and childhood mortality. But if people got out of those, those infantile years, they would live just as long as we're living now, if not sometimes longer, you know, and, and now we're at this point where, yeah, the, the life expectancy has continuously gone up for the last century because we're better with the, you know, the, the, the childhood mortality and infantile mortality care. But, um, we're starting to see it go the other way now, you know, and it's clearly the environment and, and things we're doing to ourselves, but everyone wants to dismiss that and, and, and say it's other things that that's not things that we're doing, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Cool. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, t- you touched upon this already. Um, but you know, you're, you're big on the whole like food, food behavior. Um, and you know, really addressing the individual's behavior when it comes to how they're eating, what they're eating. Um, how do you like approach that? Like, how do you go after that with people like in terms of their behavior? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So when I think of nutrition, typically we have this model of it's a food science, but I have a model that it's really more of a biopsychosocial science. So that's where the behavior comes in because And that's why someone's background with food matters so much because it's driving behavior right now. It's driving the way their nervous systems learn to operate and it's driving all the kind of incoherent, barely articulated (laughs) sub-stories functioning in the brain, basically is the way I think about it. Um, I love the Carl Jung quote. Um, He was one of the fathers of modern psychology and basically offered to the world the idea of the subconscious. He, and which it, when that first came out, because we think of that now, like we, we're all familiar with it. When that first came out, that was a shocking idea that oh, there's a sure. subconscious, like if you think of the, the time period where he shared that. But he is a famous quote. Um, if you do not bring the subconscious to the conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And that's one of my favorite quotes. And that's why I love Carl Jung and all of his yeah, work. Absolutely. And that is going on with food. We just n- didn't realize that. We think food as you're in this moment in time where you're eating this meal and there's no reason you're eating this meal other than this is what you selected. And then that's why people all the time don't understand why do I self-sabotage? Why do I have uh, patterns of self-betrayal? I'm doing this without even thinking. Or my favorite, you always hear like, I didn't realize what I ate till it was gone. So you see this subconscious interplay um, or we look at food drive. I was driven towards a meal once we figured out because of how stressed I was or how emotional I was feeling or the reward that I needed. And so if we start picking apart each client's life story, there's this massive food story and they have beliefs about food. They have automated behaviors. There's this huge subconscious drive that's really driving the whole train, which People don't realize, but the logical part of our brain is quite small. Executive yeah. function is a very, very small yeah, part of the sure. brain. For sure. Most of the brain is subconscious. Yeah. And the nervous system certainly can't talk per se. Um, so the food story and food behavior is where we have to bring the subconscious to the conscious. We have to help an individual learn who they are and what it is that they believe and how that's driving behavior now and then consciously with intentionality rewire it. 
Um, and, and people have a lot of inherited behavior when it comes to food, like anything, right? Yeah, like sure. we, we end up like um, our parents or the communities we grew up in. And that's why I, I have, I hear the funniest things. I, I feel like I could have a whole book about client stories, but clients will say things like, my mom was always low fat. So we always had snack wells in the house, you know, <laughs> oh, like yeah, the green yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, snacks around. So I grew up thinking, okay, I can't have fat. And my dad was always low carb. So then, like, we couldn't have potatoes, rice, pasta, yeah. grains. So, like, what are we eating? Like, are, just, uh, just water? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 they also thought low protein yeah, exactly. would damage yeah. your kidneys. Yeah. So, so protein damaged your kidneys, so they were low protein. Yeah. So then she's like, I grew up just having no idea what to eat. Like, everything felt bad. I always thought I was messing up. So then that, that sends people in these different directions. Like, one person becomes a chronic dieter. Another person says forget it. I, I give up. I'm just going to eat whatever because I don't want, like if I see another snack wells package, it's not in my home. Like now that I'm an adult, right? Yeah, like yeah. I, I won't even look at that. Um, so once you start picking these stories apart, you can see what's driving behavior and that's where we can do a lot of work. And there's a lot of area of opportunity there because it's usually totally untapped. Yeah, we need to get you back on for a. Uh, we do every five episodes. We do patient stories or client Ooh, stories. We need to get yes. you in for that for nutrition stories. <laughs> yes. That would yes. be good. Oh, I have so many I know. beautiful oh, stories, that, exciting stories, hilarious. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get that going. We for love sure. those. Those are fun. That Definitely. is interesting. But it is it, you know for for listeners, Aaron's right that the sub the subconscious is the majority of our brain, and that's in you know, an evolutionary adaptation for energy conservation. Like if we were consciously thinking about every decision, we would be so mentally exhausted. You wouldn't be able to get anything accomplished. You wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to go get your food because you'd just be so tired. Um, so there, there is a reason that we, most of our processes are subconscious, you know, and, and just knowing that is powerful. And just like you said, you have to create awareness. Like that's the first step, just, just like most things. And the same goes for, for movement. Like when we deal with someone from a movement perspective, you know, we're trying to create awareness first. Like, Hey, look, you're moving and, or your lack of moving is a problem, you know, or the way you're moving is a problem. We have to be aware of that first. So now we can make the appropriate environmental changes. All right, let's, let's get into it a little bit. So Chad and I touch upon this kind of concept, um, a lot with regard to vegetables. And I'm going to start with, um, so Betty White, rest in peace, just recently passed away. But at one point she did have a quote. She joked saying that she attributed her lifelong health and longevity to avoiding anything that is green. Okay. Chad and I talk about how like we don't avoid things that are green, but it's not the main thing on our plate. Like we both eat salads from time to time, but we're not like you know, it's like, okay, vegetables, and then just a little bit of, you know, meat or protein over here. So is there merit to this, this notion that there are some harmful components, you know, of, of vegetables, even though they're in our culture regarded as superfoods? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, so the way I frame um, that to be component, completely honest, full disclosure, Nick is very much carnivore. So he's not bashing <laughs> vegetables, but you guys, I want to hear this head to head. So I, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm carnivore. Are you carnivore-ish? I'm carnivore-ish I'm carnivore I'm carnivore yeah. yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like the, yeah. the bulk of my food, yeah, <laughs> the bulk of my food is absolutely, like I have meat at every meal and that's the main thing. And then I'll have a, 
I try to vary my vegetables. So I try to vary them. Like I'm not, I'm trying to not have the same thing, you know, every single day. And I, I enjoy that more too. So it might be, you know, broccoli, then butternut squash, you know, zucchini. So I'll try to vary it as much as I can. And then, um, I grew up thinking like, oh, you can only have a little bit of fruit kind of thing. But now I kind of eat fruit. I, I exercise a lot, probably too much. So I, now I don't really like monitor fruit. I just, you know, kind of eat, eat what I feel I need. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much that. And then obviously the healthy fats too. So I, I, I get, you know, I'll eat fattier cuts of meat, but also, you know, butter, add butter to things. Um, I, we use tallow to cook a lot. So things like that, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I feel better. Like I was mentioning to, um, Aaron before the podcast, I grew up with, um, a ton of allergies, not necessarily to certain foods, but just like seasonal allergies, runny nose a lot. I had asthma. I was diagnosed with a condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. So basically when I ate certain things, my, my esophagus would, would swell up and it would be hard to, to swallow the food. And the first thing I noticed that I had trouble with was number one, starchy carbs, and then actually uncooked vegetables. So I could eat, if I ate like carrots and peppers raw, I would get the, the reaction. But if they, I would ate them cooked, I wouldn't get it. And I was like, oh man, there's something in this that gets, you know, is actually either, you know, cooked away or reduced once I cook it. So it's interesting. Yeah. The way that I view this part of our, of our nutrition science is that this is a, and this is the um, nuance required that just does not translate well to social media captions yeah, and, sure, sure. and dealing with the public because it, this doesn't necessarily sell books or products either, but the what I feel is a critical component of deciding what we want to eat is the function of the host environment interaction. So I think the utility with lower um, carbohydrate diets is when the host immune system, so I'll back up when I say host, that means one person and their unique body. Um, so we can we can talk about Nick's body. Nick, as a host, might have immune function that is intolerant to those potentially inflammatory compounds that plants do have. Um, so plants have some protective mechanisms, but they're rather small. They're not necessarily profound protective mechanisms because they're safe to eat. They don't they don't kill us per se. Some plants do. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. certainly poisonous plants, but the the immune system is so unique that that's where I I feel the utility of lower plant diets come in when we have an immune system that is not tolerating these small triggers because the immune system is, is as unique as a fingerprint. And that's what the, in the microbiome is as well. And that is so complex to get into with people that they're like, yeah. what are you, what, what are you talking about? Um, so when, when these diets gets discussed, I think that all of them, not all, but many of them have utility depending on the host and how the host is interacting with the environment. So, and actually we can go back to evolution for this because, which I know Nick can get down with for sure. We are an arboreal species. So we literally came down from the trees and we absolutely had protein in the diet. It was mostly insects. So it was small, yeah, small protein sure. sources with a lot of roughage. The problem with gnawing on roughage all day, raw roughage is you have to eat all day. Yeah. You have to eat all day. And we absolutely had a turning point in our evolution where we started hunting larger game um, and we started using fire. 
and we outsourced digestion. So then we start eating large, like huge amounts of nutrients in more digestible and, and rapid boluses. So that's where we took a turning point, if you want to be specific for the nerds out there, out of the Australopithecus species and into Homo erectus, and the bipedal ape with a larger brain that we start seeing changes in the jaw and the teeth and, and uh, the development of language starts emerging. And undoubtedly, offspring must have been thriving more with these huge doses of cooked nutrition because meat is so is so nutritious. And because of that, I think we can we we know though that we also continue to consume roughage, but we we know that this relationship of natural roughage and a ton of protein and, and healthy fat is all capable to yeah, be digested absolutely. by us. Um, I I mentioned this the other day um, when I was speaking, but sometimes you see online. Of course, you get the extremes on social media, but you see For that sure. you For see sure. those posts of like skip the cow, eat the grass. We don't have a rumen. So where we ferment carbohydrates is the last compartment of our GI tract, not the first. Cows can ferment carbohydrates because the rumen is the first compartment of the GI. So if you even look at our digestive tract, we can see how we're designed to function. Stomach comes first, and it it has the acidity of battery acid. So we secrete hydrochloric acid in the stomach. It has a pH of about 2, and that works in a few key functions. It denatures proteins so we can access them. So we're clearly designed to eat protein because that's the first breakdown. And then it's also a bactericide. So we can kill pathogens if it's on our food, which can be on uh, carbohydrates and fats, but certainly can be in meat. And then we absorb and break down everything more fully in the small intestine. And then the large intestine is where we see fermentation. That's where we also know we're, we are designed to have some plants because we have these really beneficial species in there, particularly the butyrate-producing species, that only can produce butyrate by fermenting carbs. So we know there's some that should be in there because we have this symbiotic relationship with them. And for the nerds out there, when we produce more butyrate and other postbiotic metabolites, it helps us really promote intestinal integrity. So the colon should have two linings of mucus holding that microbiome inside of the lumen. There shouldn't be any bacterial encroachment onto our epithelial cells. So we want that mucus lining to be really thick and healthy, and we get that through butyrate production. But the thing now is the way we're eating carbohydrates, the way we move, the way we're inside all day, the way we don't sleep, the way we don't exercise, all these things are so inflammatory that I think what we're seeing is there's a derangement in a lot of our immunity and they're not tolerating these small insults sometimes in many of these conditions where we see the the host environment interaction is not properly regulated. So when the immune system is a little deranged in some of these manners, they're not going to tolerate these small insults from these plant compounds. Um, so that's where we see a lot of utility with cooking or even lower plant. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's just what I thought you were smart, Nick. That's yeah, a no, new level well, of No, smart. I know. So that's really cool. You mentioned butyrate. So there is butyrate in butter, correct? Is There's it? a teeny bit in butter, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, what role would butter play in that if, if butyrate's <laughs> being a 
<laughs> I just I am curious now because I, I heard butyrate. Yeah, so. there's there's trace amounts. So butyrate is a short chain fatty acid. So um, it's a short fat. So basically, um, for people listening, uh, fats are these really really long hydrocarbon chains. So they could be 18 carbons long, 16 carbons long, 14 carbons long, um, or shorter. Butyrate is a one of these shorter. Uh, carbon chain. So it's a short chain fatty acid that has a lot of benefit. We we actually don't know a ton about butyrate in terms of, there's a lot of research now looking at, does it leave the GI? How does that function in the bloodstream? You know, are there certain cells or metabolic processes that are sensitive or require butyrate? Um, but we do know inside the GI tract, it's extremely beneficial. And butter has a little bit, um, not a whole lot though. So, okay. but that's one of the reasons why butter so interesting it it has a lot of different types of fat and then people don't realize that about fat sources they're not all one fat yeah, for sure if we look at peanut oil or butter or an avocado there could be some there's a different percentages of monounsaturated versus poly versus fully saturated absolutely and there's there's different chains of fatty acids in a lot of the fat sources themselves interesting um so my my biggest takeaway from that that whole um you know, description on, on vegetables was that you don't need to like get too bent out of shape. Like if you can't get a ton of vegetables on your plate, number one, number two, not every vegetable is right for every single person. Cause everybody's different. Everybody's got their own, their own fingerprint. So, um, for people listening, figure out what you, you know, if, if you eat a vegetable and you don't feel very good after, maybe you don't have to eat that vegetable. Like it's not necessary just because someone said, you got to eat your carrots, um, but you carrots don't sit well with you. Okay, we don't have to eat carrots, right? Like you can get those those vitamins, minerals, and and carbs in another way. So, uh, I think that's important for a lot of people to 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 hear because I don't know. I just I think there's this big push towards, you know, it's like oh, spinach kale have this, you know, carrots have this, your squashes have this, and it's like yeah, you can absolutely eat them, but if you don't feel good with it, like that's that's you. You, you don't have to eat that just because someone said you need to, you can get those nutrients elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, um, right. would you say that there's certain um, vegetables that you find, um, whether they have higher levels of like lectins or something that people don't tend to tolerate as well that you just say, hey, you know what, let's just, let's go a different direction. Let's go more towards this vegetable versus that. Yeah, that's, that's another really good question. Um, so I'll, I'll back up first and say, so tolerance is just a really interesting idea, right? Like this is, and this is often really misunderstood because we have allergies, which is for, for people interested, that is mediated by immunoglobulin E. So IgE is like anaphylaxis. So, but then we also have these other immunoglobulins, particularly IgG, which is indicated in a lot of um, al- some allergic responses. But where we're, the idea of tolerance is so interesting is we we know when we have peanut allergies and anaphylaxis, yeah. then there's this secondary concern of intolerances like lactose intolerant, but that's not an allergy. It's an enzyme deficiency. So I don't produce enough lactase to cleave lactose when it's in my small intestine. I get this large sugar molecule in my colon. I have then bloating diarrhea, for example. Not fun for those of those of us who have it. I don't have it. I'm, I'm glad because I love cheese, but um, <laughs> I feel Same. bad. Lactose intolerance is a tough one. Yeah. That's like, who cares about gluten? Like, give me cheese. Yeah. Seriously, <laughs> I'm right with you on that. That one stinks. Oh, yeah. Um, and people don't realize that's not an allergy. That's an enzyme deficiency. 
But then there's this other field of sensitivity or tolerance that might be that my microbiome or other digestive processes aren't allergic to something per se, but they're having an issue either digesting them fully, which is what we can talk about in regards to FODMAPs. So when you mentioned like which vegetables people have problems with, this is an intolerance to highly fermentable foods. If someone needs a low FODMAP diet, we see this is actually a very well-researched diet. It's really interesting. It has a lot of utility at times in IBS and IBD. So in some of the irritable bowel syndromes and diseases, um, low FODMAP, or sometimes it's called low residue diets. Um, FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharides, and polyols. And these are carbohydrates that are fermentable by the bacteria in the colon, which is in the microbiome. And if we are having trouble tolerating those, we're getting a lot of bloat, pain, gas, sometimes constipation, and people aren't tolerating those when they have a bloom of a certain species in the GI that might be big gas producers. So the first um, low-hanging fruit, if someone's having trouble with certain vegetables, is to check maps. So those really fermentable carbs, which include like wheat, onions, oats, apples, some forms of dairy, actually, um, sweeteners like honey and maple syrup, cabbages, cruciferous veg like cauliflower and broccoli and some of those. But that's also an intolerance, not an allergy. And the intolerance is more so the species that have colonized me are not tolerating this well, or at least I don't like the feeling of it when they are fermenting these carbohydrates. Um, But then we also might see some other issues. So that's not an allergy though. Um, And then we also see other issues, which is a big uh, place of drama in the nutrition world, which is food sensitivity testing. You've probably heard of a a lot of that. And the interesting thing about that, and this is why the, the immune capacity of the host matters so much is IgG has four subclasses. So there's IgG 1, 2, 3, and 4. And so this is not IgE anaphylaxis. We're talking IgG now. And when we look at food sensitivity testing, some of the companies don't say which IgG they're measuring. So that's like the first suspicious moment for me. But I I like when labs are really, really, they need to be clear. Um, But IgG, IgG 4 in particular, seems to be showing that it's actually a marker of tolerance. And this is the interesting thing. We have to remember with the immune system, 70% of the immune system is in the gut. And our gut is the outside world. Yeah, That volumen of the GI tract is not, it's technically inside of the physical house of the body, but But it's the outside world. And so somebody in there has to start keeping track of what we'll take in, I think what we'll tolerate. So when we think of immune reactions, they might be inflammatory, but somebody also has to keep track of what we tolerate. Like, okay, you're allowed in, or we're not going to attack you. or So, so things also get tagged as tolerance. So that's where food sensitivities, um, pr- particularly in regard to blood assessment, um, is a huge gray area because these uh, lab, these companies, these private over-the-counter tests are measuring IgG responses to food and giving back sensitivity panels, but they actually might be measuring tolerance, which is why people eat like pineapple and vanilla and cucumber, and then they find out, oh my God, I'm allergic to pineapple, cucumber, <laughs> and vanilla. They remove it from their diet, and then they're eating, say, 
um, melons and rice. And then they do another round and they're like, oh my God, I'm allergic to melons and rice. <laughs> it's because it's tagging what they're eating now. Yeah, for uh, sure. So that, that's um, a piece of drama. So to the, my long-winded answer to that is we definitely can look at certain carbs like FODMAPs that can be a problem. Um, and you, what you really want to also though, do though, just to finish that thought is you need to you would actually want to create tolerance because I think with the immune system, you should go a level deeper and say, why isn't this person tolerating that? Not just to say, oh, just remove it. It's like you should be able to, you know, maybe you never can, but you should be able to tolerate some fermenters. Yeah, for sure. That's a good thing. So um, it's interesting. But so there's sensitivities, allergies, intolerances. Some of those are very malleable and you can create tolerance. Some of them are gray areas. Some of them are, are more extreme. I like it. I like it. Like a vertical diet, is that like an example of a low f- f- uh, FODMAP diet? Or is that like kind of like a variation of? That's a good question. Um, what's involved in that? So I think it's a lot of like steak, rice, carrots, I think, I think eggs. And that's really much Yeah, it. that's actually low FODMAP. Yeah. Rice, carrots, yeah. proteins are yeah. all low FODMAP. I know I did that for a while and I felt a lot better on it. But I also want to talk about <laughs> this. Uh, so I, I tried this uh, two years ago and it was right about when that Game Changers film came out. And I, oh, I know, I know, oh, I know. Oh, boy. I know. <laughs> I might wheel out. Nick, Nick did not have this on his list, but I had this on my list. I know. List. I, it, and <clears throat> go for it. And I, no, I'm asking because I was like, you know what? wow, this actually seems compelling, right? So I tried it for a month and I felt horrible. And um, my body's not used to taking in all those vegetables. So I know like it's tell, you. It's tell like, her what you. Tell you, her where you were before that. You know, give her, give her some background here. Like you were right. eating. So I was eating like chicken and rice pretty much yeah. every, every, every three hours. Like the yeah. typical every stupid bodybuilding diet. That was me, right? Um, I don't then, do that anymore, but yeah. um, that was pretty much what I, what I ate. And then I went straight to just eating, you know, avocados, a, ton of chickpeas chickpeas and quinoa quinoa you know everything under the sun yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. um but nothing meat related (laughs) and um terrible bloating tons of gas and i just felt like lethargic you know everything they told me i was going to feel was the exact opposite of that so um and he stopped the day we told him he looks small. <laughs> and I lost five pounds. Yeah. Turning um, point. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. You look kind of small, man. So I know I had a lot <laughs> to do with biceps look deflated. I know I had it had a lot to do with my body not um, understanding how to digest that and break that down. But I mean, is there anything else to that? Like for like my wife's a vegetarian and I think she's she's I'm I gotta like this close to eating meat, but like um, what do you oh, we like? Should bring up that point too. Yeah, let's bring that up. Yes. After. All right. After but we talk yeah, about that. go go with your but, question first. But why was I feeling that way when I made that transition? I know I went zero to a hundred, right? And I know a lot of people do this. Like you were saying, like it's you know I'm gonna try this. Oh, I don't feel good. It must be an allergy or something, right? So they they go to the next thing and then the next thing. But um, what's your take on on that whole on that whole thing? <sighs> yeah. Game changers. I don't yeah. think I've ever woken up to so many emails I in bet. my inbox after that <laughs> came out. And I was just like, <sighs> yeah. and then just like answering so many emails because yeah. people were like, oh my God, you know, I-, I can't eat meat. I'm going to have cancer. This is sludge. Like yes. all-, all these things. First of all, what is sludge? I still wonder. I is there, know, right? is this like, can I, I get the chemical composition of sludge? Um, so the the interesting thing, first, let me just say to, because I, I always want to reiterate this to people listening, 
be very careful of nutrition documentaries just sure. in yes. general. Oh, Can yes. we just like, you know, bolster that concept? <laughs> just be very wary because Agreed. this is not a science of eat this, not that. Right. We do not. I mean, that would be great. My yeah. job would be easy totally. if this was a black and white science. And I work in epidemiology specifically more so. And I can tell you there's not a lot of black and white moments in this science. Um, but what I will say for what you probably experienced was, so when we think about the microbiome, so that's the collection of all the microbiota. So we've got in there bacteria, yeast, protozoa, viruses, fungi, all sorts of species. And when, so that's the microbiota is the species themselves. And the microbiome is referring to all the species plus their genetic material and metabolites. And that is literally, I like to think of it as a rainforest. And this helps people, I think, when they can visualize this to shift out of the idea of it's simple. Like I want people to think of it as a whole environment. And when we think of a rainforest, there's dirt, there's so many different types of species, there's rain, there's humidity, there's sunshine. This is a whole ecosystem. That's also in your colon. So that is a whole ecosystem. There's colonies, there's survival of the fittest, there's different species, um, there's, there's really different pH, all these things. And they develop signatures to them. So that ecosystem over your lifespan starts to look a certain way. And what we do know about diet is it can actually change that pretty rapidly, more rapidly than anything else almost. So it's very malleable, but not as malleable as people think sometimes. That's why probiotics, there's a lot of question marks around them. But um, the diet, so say someone's on a low residue diet, like you have a lot of white rice and chicken. There's not a lot of fermentation going on there. There's not necessarily a lot of roughage. Then you flood that rainforest with all these plants they've never seen before right and somehow they're they've got to find a way to get through and there's competition there's so there's a lot of survival of the fittest because when we're looking at bacteria we're looking at who can who can survive so we we call it a bloom when one species blooms another one has to die off so there's a lot of uh, death and reproduction in there as well and so if we think of that rainforest we we may dramatically shift what's available or you know maybe by adding all the roughage we can think of it as we it never stopped raining or it, it went really dry. So the environment, the ecosystem, all of a sudden is having this huge influx that's totally different than anything it's ever seen. And then you might have a lot of fermenters or gas producers all of a sudden getting fueled in a way they've never been fueled. And then that's when we look three months pregnant and we don't feel good and we're really lethargic. Uh, there's this massive shift in the immune function, the whole environment, the pH can start to change. Um, so it can be a shock to that environment if it's things they've never seen before nice that is interesting. that's it that's exactly how that, i felt that's yeah. that's super interesting yeah you can yeah. finish your and thought I, well I have I, another thought I, too. and i i obviously looking back on it now it was like super super dumb but um <laughs> but when i did that's right it was subconscious it was subconscious but when i was watching it 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 did give me a lot of um uh idea as to how we should be eating our food like what is our food eating right like you know, we should probably be spending more time on what our food eats than the food that we're eating, right? So, like, when they were showing some of those plants, then I was like, wow, it's pretty disgusting, you know? So, I think, if anything, it changed my thought process on where I should be getting my food, like my yeah, meat, yeah. um, as opposed to, you know, I should be eating just plants or whatever. Yeah. Well know? said. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. No, but I, 
some of the concepts you brought up there, like, it, I mean, Chad knows that going zero to a hundred pretty much on anything probably isn't good unless you're sprinting. But um, I know there's this concept in, in some of the nutrition research out there with regard to like a food matrix, like how all the components of the food interact. And, you know, the something like fructose in fruits is going to interact in your body very differently than just like a fructose tablet, right? Like some, or, or just like fructose powder in, in water or something. So when you consume some of these things, like when you eat the vegetables with the meat, in my mind, the, the, the meat, some of the compounds in the meat could be buffering some of the negative compounds of the vegetables and vice versa. Some of the positive compounds of the vegetables could be buffering some of the negative compounds of the meat versus if you just eat the one thing by itself all the time, you know, now, like you said, you're biasing some of those bacteria in the gut to do certain things, or you're changing the stomach acid to basically be an environment for like, oh, if it's all meat, okay, my stomach acid is going to get a little lower and be more like a, the stomach acid of a lion versus my stomach acid should be, what is it? It's like two, 2.5, right? It, human stomach. So um, it is super interesting when you think about that. And that's kind of where I go. My brain goes, it's like, okay, you know, more so than like, okay, I'm just going to snack on this by itself. I try to eat, okay, I want a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbs, a little bit of fats all every time I eat something. Like I, I, I do it all the time where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm a little hungry, but not, you know, crazy hungry. I'm going to have some fruit. But with that fruit, I'm going to try to get a little bit of protein in with this too. And then a little bit of fat. That's why I started putting butter on my dates to get, <laughs> to get, to get, it's actually really good. It's, but um, I'm sure it is. Yeah. But. So that's where my head goes with the, with the whole like food ma food matrix concept. But let's go back to that question that oh, yeah. you also had. So yeah. Katie, our other physical therapist, Chad's wife, is um, she's more pescatarian, right? She eats fish every once yeah, in a while. She eats fish, but yeah. whenever so um, Chad eats a lot of ground beef, and whenever Katie's making it, yeah, she like salivates, like she she starts out, she but she it. won't, but she won't eat it, but she won't eat it. Yeah, like what. What would you say is going on there? <laughs> well, sal salivation is interesting. That's definitely a function of olfaction. Yeah. And we tend to then crave the cued food, which is a problem for all of us living in like the world now because there's food everywhere. Yeah, you smell the corn, the you know the restaurants on the corner. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. Walk by the donut shop suddenly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know it, but now I want a donut. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> definitely how that works. But. Um, salivating for a cued food particularly a very delicious smelling nutritious item that is on the counter definitely makes sense um she it would definitely be a personal decision if she wants to indulge and join you in that uh but her physical response is definitely a function of that olfaction so basically you're saying that her body is telling her that she needs <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell Come on. i'm gonna replay this for her just so she needs to hear it from somebody else yeah yeah olfaction is really interesting too because it's um they do some really interesting studies on this, but it is really plastic and it can change based on associations. So they did this big study at Brown where they gave people Parmesan cheese. And for some people, they told them this is Parmesan cheese and then they smell it. And for other people, they said this is vomit and then they smell it. And it was just Parmesan cheese. But you can imagine the people who thought they were smelling vomit, it's like, this smells disgusting. They rated oh it gosh. really, really low. Uh, so smell can really change depend on uh, perception and yeah. associations. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I believe that. Yeah, that's crazy. The mind that's is crazy. powerful. Okay, so you mentioned before talking about the stomach, how uh, the first thing we start to digest is protein. So clearly protein is very important. Uh, 
we, Chad and I tend to find here when we do talk about with our, like either PT patients or our, our training clients with nutri- regard to nutrition, that most of them seem to be undernourished in, with regard to protein. Do you find the same, like, do you find the same experience there? I do. Yeah, I do. So with protein, like all the macronutrients, somebody gets villainized on any given year or decade. Yeah, right. That's true. Um, you know, so whoever's on the chopping block, so it depends true. on what year it is. And um, protein has been on the chopping block and particularly for, for many of us, although it still sometimes isn't in, in some cir- circles currently. A lot of um, a lot of people grew up hearing like don't eat fat, don't eat protein. It, it causes weight gain, or it causes cancer, or, or it, it ruins your kidneys, and that is, um, I think, a function of basically how we view food in our culture in general. Um, and we don't eat very naturally occurring, satiating, nutrient dense foods, and we have all this diet talk around foods. So there's just this inherent misunderstanding, and then it's like, oh, I shouldn't eat that. I'll just have like some mac and cheese instead. This is delicious, and the protein's dangerous anyways. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> um, so we kind of can end up, you know, many, we can arrive at a low protein diet through through many different means depending on our food experiences. But I've had clients where they've been told it's really dangerous to eat protein, so it's intentional. But but I've also had a lot of clients where they they just don't eat a lot of whole foods. Um, so the diet just very organically becomes low in protein as a function of that. Yeah. 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 Aaron and I had a conversation before we, we started recording about this whole concept of protein. People, people are conditioned in our current culture, um, especially some of the older generations that too much protein, like she mentioned, you know, will be too much on your kidneys. It might cause cancer. So, um, some breaking down some some of those preconceived notions um, needs to happen for a lot of people because the reality of it is, is that you know your body builds itself back up with protein so if we don't have enough you are going to be run down you're going to be have recurring injuries you know all these things that you know gets get sick more regularly because we can't build cells back up or you know the the, the building blocks for the body back up um, so that's super super important now Aaron is there a, a metric I know for you, your work, you're focusing a lot on like the behavior, the culture of it, all that kind of stuff. But is there a metric you like to see with a lot of people in terms of protein intake? Like I know you, people toss around like, oh, gram per, per pound of body weight. Like, is there a metric that you aim for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for with most clients, it needs to go up. <laughs> so up is the initial Agreed. metric. I love it. Um, yeah. The up arrow is the first metric, especially because there's a many people don't realize with protein, there's many um, regulatory effects that just kind of run all day when we're eating adequate protein. There's a lot of um, hormonal effects that are really beneficial, uh, blood blood sugar stabilizing effects, things that go on with digestion that's really beneficial there. So up, definitely. Um, if we're looking at desired body weight, one gram per pound of desired body weight is often how I'll frame that, um, whether that's weight loss or gain actually. So it's got to go up, 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 up if you're yeah. trying to gain weight. And it often, it's not unusual for me, like say we have a client who wants to weigh 150 pounds um, and that will involve some weight loss. It wouldn't be unusual for them to be eating 60 grams of protein a day when we meet. And I know I want to get them closer to 150. That's their desired body weight. So we know it's got to go up. How we track that will depend on the client. Most of my clients don't track numerically. Um, you know, they're, people, they're like, if they're a lawyer and they're gone all day or whatever it is. Um, so thankfully, though, there's like a 
a lot of different ways to to keep track of that. One heaping palm per meal, two heaping palms per meal, half my plate. I mean, you can break this down so many different ways. Um, so we'll make it sustainable, but we know it's got to get in at each meal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, yeah, I, I, we we pretty much uh, usually use that target for people because we find find the same thing where it's like, hey, you're 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 sub 100 grams and you know you weigh 175 so you got it you got to go upward i want you to aim for this number and if you fall short of it at least you're higher than you were before kind of thing not to mention that should be coming in tandem with you you got to start resistance training as well oh absolutely so i get everybody uh, always like that's one of the first questions as well are you lifting weight are you interacting with gravity and it's usually no and then that's like what do you eat it's like a banana and it's like right. okay we're gonna right. we're gonna tackle this from both yeah. ends how do you how do you frame that for people so, so like you said the for the person who is say 150 pounds they were eating 60 grams of protein roughly uh how do you frame like hey we're going to lose weight but i need you to essentially more than double your protein intake like because for someone who isn't well versed in that would be like this doesn't make sense i need to eat twice as much of protein but i'm losing weight like how do you frame that for them yeah that, that's a good question um so it depends on what they're kind of talking a lot about when it comes to their food we might already have had a, a discussion about hedonic versus homeostatic foods and then hopefully by then they'll understand i really need to increase my homeostatic foods which takes up real estate on the plate crowds out the hedonic foods where and I even say to people like a scoop of ice cream is not the problem no one eats a scoop of ice cream you eat like three pints easily because it's so hedonic you can't regulate that your body's not designed to regulate that so it's not that you you know having a scoop of rice even as a problem or anything like that but you're eating hard to regulate foods and the calories become extremely high. So let's give you homeostatic foods that are lower in energy density, way higher in volume. You're going to feel really well fed. It's going to look like you're eating a lot, but it's actually less calories than the hedonic foods. Wow. I feel like I've tried to have that same conversation with a lot of patients and clients, but it didn't sound that good. (laughs) And I just keep talking in circles and like, doesn't make sense. You're just telling me not to eat ice cream. Like, yeah, that's fine. Just go with that. Eat more, eat more meat, less ice cream. Perfect. We're good. We're on the same page. Um, No, that's, that's, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And the, the, usually with that discussion, there was the, um, I forget who the study was by, but it was the one with the, um, the, uh, you know, strength training males, they were already active, so they had experience, but they took the two different groups and they increased by 400 calories, 100 grams of protein for the one group. And that was actually the group that lost more fat. So they both gained weight, but they lost more fat and gained more muscle. So it was, it was it's a cool study because you would think, oh, they're going to, you know, gain way more weight because they're eating 400 more calories than the other group. Um, but they actually you know, gain more, gain the same amount of weight overall, but it was all, you know, pretty much all muscle, not fat. And that's usually what I used to describe for people. It's like, Hey, look, this is going to be good weight, you know, and it's going to allow us to be a better fat burner in the future. Exactly. That's that's usually how I do it, but I like your answer a lot better. (laughs) But you bring up a good point of weight is just the weight on the scale, which is one thing for sure, but body composition. And especially when it's not unusual for me to have a clients, many of my clients have lost and regained 
50 pounds three different times yeah. by the time I'm seeing something like that is not abnormal at all. Yeah. Um, and every time they lost weight, they definitely lost lean mass because totally. we don't just lose fat when Absolutely. we lose weight. And then so we're in this ecosystem where I'm losing muscle and fat, I'm eating low protein, and then I'm really the stage is set for regain. So yo-yo dieting. But when I gain back, it's more fat tissue. And then yeah. I'm going to do that again. And just so you can see yeah. every one of these rotations, basically, we're losing lean mass, we're decreasing protein intake, then we're losing metabolic flexibility and your BMR is decreasing. Yeah. It's a, you can see it's a, it's a terrible tornado of events. Absolutely. And if someone's goal is weight loss, we don't want them to become, I forget where I heard this. It might've been, it might've been you, but, um, we don't want them to become a smaller version of themselves, right? So we don't, if, if their goal is to lose 10 pounds, we don't just want them to shed off 10 pounds of muscle. That's not good. They're the same person, just a little lighter on the scale, right? We want them to, um, you know, actually ideally gain a little bit of muscle and lose the fat, you know, so they might have to. And that's why I always tell people, and I know you do too, you, you might go up first. You might see the scale go up first. Don't be discouraged. It's okay. We just had that with a client over the last, um, you know, probably eight, eight-ish months, eight to 10 months. She, her, the, the weight is largely unchanged, but she gained five pounds of muscle, lost five pounds of fat. And it's like, no, this is great. This is what we want. And she just like, but I weigh the same. I'm like, I know. Well, that's, you're healthier though. Like that's, you know, so but the a, more muscle they gain in the long run, the yeah, more for sure. exactly. they like, can burn over time yeah, and, yeah, for sure. and everything else. But I think a lot of it has to do with, like you said, I mean, there's so much bad information out there, social media wise on the TV. Like, dude, my daughter is like so glued to this show on TLC. It's called my 600 pound life. And it's just ridiculous. Like, you know, these doctors put these people on 800 calorie diets. Like, you know, these people are eating like, who knows, pay 10,000 calories a day. Oh and now all of a sudden like, here, here's 800 calories. I just want oh to eat just leafy it's greens. So and just, but you, like you said, it's, they're just shedding a whole bunch of muscle, a whole bunch. Yeah. I mean, they're putting themselves at a higher risk for injury just by losing yeah. like all that muscle mass and everything all at once, you know, and um, people think that's like the only way to do it. And it's not. You know, it's not the healthiest way. So the the risk is a good point, too, I because you see after so many cycles of of that weight loss with no resistance training and low protein diets, I see a lot of osteopenia yeah. beginning. Um, I have a lot of female clients who've, done, you know, been through that that yo-yo dieting cycle four or five times. They're in their mid 40s, late 40s, and they're, they're hitting the osteopenia range. And I joke with them like, I am so glad we met because we're going to talk about lifting weight right now <laughs> like right now so yeah <laughs> get, go grab a can of soup you're going to yeah. start lifting it right. and uh hold and the dumbbell while i talk to you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. yeah. exactly yeah. super important yeah. um so clearly we're all fans of protein do you think that with this whole protein thing there is any problem to us prioritizing it's like oh protein everyone thinks you know muscle meat right like that's just what we think of but obviously it's it's more um more well-known to with, with the plant-based proteins, but do you think that there is any problems that can arise from us really getting most of our protein from muscle meat? Because now we're getting, um, you know, too many of the same amino acids and not enough variety. So we're getting a little bit, um, you know, in terms of that competition in the body, we have the, the same amino acids all the time. Those are the prioritized ones. And then we're not getting enough of the other ones. So, uh, you know, I know that's a reason why collagen is big, right? Like collagen doesn't have, um, like as much of the tryptophan as muscle meat does. So now you're getting more of the other amino acids. So do you think that, um, and you, you know where I'm going with this with, with organ meats, 
do you think we need more of this variety in the protein world more than just muscle meat? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the it's often called nose to tail eating. Um, I think there's a lot of utility there. I think, um, first of all, I think so. My family's a lot of outdoorsmen. There's a lot of hunting and fishing going on. I've heard. And nose to tail eating is uh, a part of their their lifestyle as hunters and outdoorsmen. And it's a lot of shows a lot of respect to the animal, uh, which I think is important. I, I think n- nothing should, um, in, in my personal bias towards natural systems, I don't think that um, we should ever um, not take full advantage of a loss of life. Um, and I think that nose to tail eating so is definitely more respectful and evolutionarily appropriate. And then we have more diverse nutrients um, so like livers and, and the heart and things like that offer a lot of nutritional value. So if someone's, and also people have to get smarter if the diet gets more limited. So you've got to know what you're doing when the diet gets that. And the same thing happens on all sides of the spectrums. When people are fully vegan, they're very, very limited diet. Yeah, someone's sure. fully carnivore, very, very limited diet. Absolutely. You've got to be able to like play that game Absolutely. if that's where you're headed. For so you've sure. got to be sneaky, clever and diverse and know what you're doing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, it, you hit the nail on the head with when you said, um, consistent from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, that just made, it just makes so much sense to me where it's, that it's nose on the tail. Yeah. Yeah. The nose <laughs> on the t- yeah. Hit the nose on the tail, but it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, we wouldn't have just been like, you know, hunted an animal and then been like, oh, yeah, just eat the muscle and then leave the rest, right? Like, yeah, we wouldn't, we would never do that. So, and I also think about too, it's like, what are, you know, some of these common um, mineral and vitamin deficiencies? And then you see, oh, it's like, oh, vitamin A is a really, really common growing deficiency. And something like beef liver is super, super high in vitamin A. It's like, oh, that actually kind of makes sense. You know, all these deficiencies we see, they're very high, you know, what's a huge supplement on the market right now? CoQ10. It's like, well, that's in heart, you know? So we have all these, um, these, these supplements that are growing and it's like, oh, people need this. People need this. Why do people need it? Because we're not getting in the diet somewhere where if we were still consuming, you know, the variety of, of meats to include some of those organ meats. We've talked about that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know we're, we're getting pressed for time, but one more thing, just because people love this nowadays. So we got to ask you about supplements. Okay. Are there any, <laughs> are there any supplements that you, um, you will right off the bat recommend to, to patients or do you not even go to supplements right away? Yeah. So one that, because we're in new England, we have to say vitamin D. Um, and people don't realize I had a professor in grad school who would say I could stand buck naked in Boston in December and on a sunny day. And I wouldn't make a gram of vitamin D. People don't realize there's a very specific and distinct chemical reaction to produce vitamin D endogenously in the body. And we need certain wavelengths of light that we do not get. If the, the par- I forget the number parallel, but it's basically north of Virginia, um, November to April, usually, we do not get that wavelength. So we need it. Um, so I would definitely say at least like half the year looking at a good uh, vitamin D supplement um, or uh, I love the Thorn Labs vitamin D plus K2. That's nice. the one that that's I take. Nice. Um, it's a it's also a fat soluble vitamin. So it's nice to get it in a liquid drop like that because fat delivers the vitamin. Um, 
fat soluble, meaning it literally kind of rides on a little bit of a fat bus once it's in the uh, once it's in the GI tract. It's not water soluble. Um, so vitamin D for sure. We want to think about uh, for for us New Englanders or anyone north of Virginia. The other thing we tend to be rather low on is in omega threes. Um, so if someone just cannot get down with good fatty wild fish um, or sustainably farmed like a like an aquaculture. Um, uh, production, uh, which I, I look for on labels. That's a really nice label, sustainable, sustainably raised um, salmon from an aquaculture pr- uh, producer is great. If someone just cannot do it, um, an omega-3 can be appropriate. And also a really good multivitamin can be helpful as well if someone is struggling to, to get everything in, which most people are. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah for sure. For sure. And I think, I think it's important for people to know too. I know if we have talked about this on a few other ones, like that there are we we've already talked on this podcast that there are positive things to to plants there's positive things to animal products but there are certain nutrients that your body needs that are only in animal products you know and like Aaron just mentioned one K2 K2 is an animal products K1 is the one the the vitamin K found in plants your body needs K2 so if you're only eating plants you you need you need some K2 in your life and there's there's a ton of other ones too a ton of the B vitamins same thing you know vitamin A is is different in plants versus animals so we see it, it through nature all the time um and i would the the other thing i would say with that the fish oil thing um you know yes we need omega 3s and it's in my opinion in large part because our diets are so high in omega 6s so we throw the balance off right so that's why a lot of people benefit from the omega 3 do you recommend uh, storing your fish oil, if someone's taking a fish oil supplement, like in the fridge? Because I've heard that, but I, I never really looked into it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good safeguard. The other thing you can do if you want it from a whole food source is, have you heard of Salmon Roe, R-O-E? You can get this delivered. I think it's frozen at some crazy, uh, it's like zero degrees Celsius. And it's, it's like the super yeah. low, low temp. Um, and you can get that uh, sent to you in little freezer packages and you can nice. keep that in the freezer and, and have like a tablespoon a day. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. Those polyunsaturated fatty acids are heat sensitive. Yep. So I like to keep them cold. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I, I forget where I had heard it, but I had heard it and I was like, oh, that, that makes sense. Cause it, it, it could potentially go rancid if, depending on where you're storing it and that kind of stuff. So it's just a good safeguard. Um, Cool. I love Any it. other uh, questions? No, I think that I think that's. Is there anything else you want to mention, Aaron? Is there anything else that you think that you know our viewers need to hear? I would wise? say, let's see. Ooh, there's there's always so much. I know. Try oh, yeah, to, for sure. I, I would know. say try to be a good scientist yes. and try to be diet agnostic. Mm-hmm. I feel very diet agnostic. Um, I Absolutely. think it's a really exciting thing that our science is so flexible. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a good thing. So the the only message that I would try to leave people with is um, it, we live in a world of a lot of pseudoscience and misinformation and emotional discussions, which uh, one of... <laughs> One of my favorite uh, voices in the nutrition world, just because he's hilarious, is Lane Norton. And he always jokes, science doesn't care about your feelings. And <laughs> <So> um, <true. laughs> I, I mean, of course, we want to be emotionally intelligent and have a tremendous amount of respect for people when we're speaking sure. with them. But 
it actually is true. Like data, data doesn't really care about our feelings all that much. And I just try to approach my science with that mindset. Um, I think it's exciting that there's this much flexibility. It means you don't have to live on a tightrope. I think that's a good thing. And it also, can we just say your body is amazing that you don't have to live on a tightrope? Like yeah. amazing fantastic that you can eat all these different types of nutrients and you can gain muscle and you can walk that much and you can survive. And, um, our bodies are are beautiful and um so i think having that type of reverence for them also makes a lot of sense in this science so that's all i would leave people with to try to bring that into your food life nice nice yeah and that goes back to what we've said on numerous of the other podcasts where it's like be your own health scientists be your own primary care you know provider like you you come first so and it's it's just about trying to be a little bit better each day. You don't have to change everything by tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a little bit at a time. That's a journey. That's right. That's it. So if anybody wants to find any more information about you, Aaron, where where can they find you? So my Instagram is Aaron's Uncommon Eats. My website is AaronMurrayWellness.com. Um, and you can email me at Aaron at AaronMurrayWellness.com. Nice. And I'll put that in the show notes too. So you guys can look there if you didn't get that clearly enough we're gonna have to have have another part we'll have another maybe maybe more with with aaron because we got to do the stories and then we can there's definitely other things we could talk about people are gonna want more i know you just you just you just could go for another hour i know well no aaron it yeah, I like listening to Aaron because it's it just makes it makes so much more sense. But like when I want to say that too. What you want to say? Well, exactly. It just goes like this. well, it does because I want to say things it's to like patients and clients. Mike and I with insurance the way you know? the way it came yeah the way it came out of Aaron's <laughs> mouth. So I I need to listen to her more yeah. in order for it to I get you know it. to just I get it roll Thank off the you. tongue. You know? Thank you. I've had a lot of reps, almost eight years of clients, yeah. and a lot of failures. Yes. So. Oh sure, <laughs> you learn from those. That's it. Those are the ones you learn most from. Exactly. Cool. So what do we got coming up next episode? Next time we are, um, we just realized today that we, we haven't really touched upon anything above the waist. Yes. Well, actually above the low back. That's right. So, That's um, right. we, we do treat shoulders, necks, elbows, uh, people <laughs> out there. So we're going to start talking about the shoulder for you a little bit, just to, to let you know that we, we do, yeah. we do work with that stuff. Maybe, so we're yeah. going to talk some rotator cuff yeah. injuries. Yep. Um, so we know a lot of people out there have dealt with that and, uh, yeah, we figured, 30 plus episodes and we should probably start talking about the yeah, shoulder we can we can bust some myths with that and yeah. you know have a good conversation for yeah. sure for sure so Aaron may know this or may not know this but I do a moral of the story after every single episode that you do um, and usually when we have a guest I have no idea what it's going to be so when you see me like typing over here I'm just getting my moral down you know <laughs> I love um, that so you kind of already had your moral which was great um, and then I just throw my little twist on it. So, um, so my moral of the story today is uh, many takeaways from this episode. We started asking the question, what does it mean to eat? But maybe we should be asking ourselves, what is our food story? As Aaron mentioned, our parents have become who they are from the communities they are from. So just sit on that and digest it for a sec. I said, your diet now may very well have been affected from what you ate as a kid. I mean, Nick ate McDonald's every day. So yeah. He had to overcome that after peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Haven't had it in years, though. That's right. So why are you eating what you eat? Is it just because it's easily available? Do you ask yourself, why did I eat that after you've already finished your meal? Why do I salivate when I smell the aroma of freshly cooked grass-fed beef? I had to throw that in there. I'm sorry. I had to do it. If you are confused about nutrition, not sure about what you should be eating, do I have a food allergy? Do I have a food sensitivity or an intolerance? You need to check out Erin Murray. She'll clear it all up for you. Like Erin said, we can't expect to put a polar bear in the rainforest and expect it to just figure it out. Either be your own food scientist 
or get yourself one. Thank you for joining us in the rack this week. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also find us online at proformptma.com or on social media at proformptma. And remember, if you train inside the rack, you better be thinking outside the rack.